welcome to week 29 of the 52 Week Film Project. Happy New Year to everyone. It is now 2019. And Happy this... New Year! Happy New Year! Uh, and this week we are reviewing uh, Bird Box and Mary Poppins Returns. I am Will, this is Jake. How are you doing, buddy? Hello, mate. I'm doing very well. Happy New Year well. to We're you. 2019. Happy New Year, mate. We, we've done um, this podcast technically now. We, we crossed the years. We've been doing it for two years, basically. <laughs> yeah, near enough. That's what we can tell people when, you know, we start getting those deals coming in and sponsors are like, you know, we want our product on your show, but what kind of statistics have you got? We'll be like, well, we've been running for two years now. We've exactly. Been doing it in 2018 and 2019. 2018 and um, 2019, more importantly. Thank you very much. Exactly. 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 <laughs> um, but before the execs turn up, what better way to start 2019 than talking about, A, the most hyped Christmas holiday film which is bizarrely a film about people committing suicide if they look at things. Merry um, Christmas, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> and Mary Poppins Returns, which is the far other end of the spectrum of holiday viewing. Um, after 54 years, we've returned to one of Disney's great classic movies. So we've got an exciting first episode back. Yeah, exactly. I'm excited. Are you excited? I am. My belly is full of mince pies. I'm ready to just talk nonsense and then new year's resolutions wise i need to start getting in the gym yeah that's pretty much the same as me are, are those mince pies reduced now is that why you've got them that mate it's brilliant if <laughs> anyone goes into sainsbury's now everything is so bloody cheap yeah i can imagine you can yeah i i don't get i feel like if you were really smart and uh, maybe this is like a student shoestring budget idea but i think you should have christmas you know if you're not religious and you you know you, you don't believe that it really does have to be held on the 25th of december you should have it a week later. Christmas in the first week of January. Think of the money you'd save. All the presents that you get on on the Boxing Day sale, um, it would be great. The only problem is that my birthday is December the 30th, so um, it would be a bit of a nightmare. Um, having Christmas on the week after would be my birthday. And then L- that, like, like it isn't already complicated enough five days after Christmas and the day before New Year. True. Oh, my God. December the 30th is a terrible time to have a birthday. Because I got... Um, I got drunk on December the 30th, which then meant that my new year was very slow and just had my stomach rolling around like a washing machine. I'm sure that's an image that everyone wants to hear, really. Um, but yes, um, it, yeah, December 30th, not the best time to have a birthday, but what a lovely birthday I did have. Um, mm-hmm. Right, do you want to give me some news, buddy? I will, mate. And obviously, like we said, we've we've been away for Christmas, so a fuckload has happened. Um, the I might as well start off with the weirdest bit of news that yeah. happened over the holiday season: um, the Kevin Spacey video. The Kevin Spacey video. The Kevin Spacey Christmas Eve Frank Underwood video. Now, what the fuck is this? So, for anyone that's been having Christmas under a rock um, on Christmas <laughs> Eve. Kevin Spacey, the um, multiple accused actor. Uh, I think there's now something like 30 different claims of sexual assault against him. Um, I don't know how many have been progressed in a court of law. Uh, But this guy, he's been hunkering down for the most of 2018. And the day before, on Christmas Day, of all the days, um, he got basically charged with another, a further crime that has been kind of well-documented and well-discussed in the news. Um, He released this video on YouTube called Let Me Be Frank, um, which is a great little pun because he's in this video addressing the camera in a monologue in kind of a southern drawl. He's kind of, he's kind of, what he's saying seems to be flitting in and out of referring to himself in like, you know, 
in real life and his current predicament, but then also kind of um, being spoken from the mind of Frank Underwood, the character on House of Cards that he embodied for several years and gained a lot of accolades for. Mm. Um, now, there are a lot of kind of theories after this came out. It's a very creepy, it's a very weird video. Um some people thought that maybe this was a bizarre move from Netflix to actually, after they've just finished House of Cards without him, um, which had a terrific final season, but it was kind of missing that pizzazz that he brought to it, sadly. Um, some people thought that maybe this was him returning to the role and this was some secret thing and maybe, you know, it wasn't actually the final season and he was coming back. Uh, but Netflix have confirmed, their lawyers have confirmed they had no hand in this um, and they are investigating it to look at whether they can kind of counter-sue him for wrongful use of a character that he has no um, financial control over. Um, but he says, I mean, you've watched this video, right? I have watched this video. I watched it on I Christmas Eve. Yeah, and it was it was chilling, man. Like he says things like across the video, he says things like, "Wouldn't it be easy if it was all so simple?" And then he says, "If I didn't pay the price for the things I did do, which I think is him referring to all the heinous things that he does as the character of Frank Underwood, then he says, then I'm certainly not going to pay the price for the things I didn't do, which is then seemingly bouncing back into reality and him referring to all the accusations that he's claiming are untrue." Um, he also says in the video, you wouldn't believe the worst without evidence, would you? You wouldn't rush to judgment without facts, would you? Did you? Um, and he's like kind of goading you as a, as a viewer into kind of thinking, is this, you know, am I kind of wrong in my opinion of him and everything? And I don't know, like, I, it makes me uncomfortable thinking that this is some kind of redemption video. Um, I don't really think he has any right to control his narrative. Now, we've discussed at length on the podcast the whole difficulty with kind of knee-jerk court of public opinion reactions to accusations without kind of real investigation taking place. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I hold steadfast in the opinions we've discussed on it. But I, did, I, I think he's doing the whole situation a disservice and it actually comes across more predatory what he's done in the way he's trying to, in a kind of, in my opinion, cowardly way, use a character he's revered for to try and court public opinion once again and control the way all of this is going. Now, he's not really being vilified that much in the media at the moment. It's only kind of after the day after this when kind of more charges were brought against him that this he would have really been brought back into the cultural zeitgeist at all. And so I find it quite creepy that he sort of spontaneously decided, maybe even ahead of knowing he's going to be charged with more things, to try and step in and change the way this is all being perceived. And it's not in a way where he sits down, maybe if he did a video called Let Me Be Frank or Let Me Be Clear and sat down in front of the camera in his own voice as his own person and decided he felt ahead of court proceedings he wanted to address the things that had been, the charges that had been brought against him, then maybe I'd be more inclined to listen and maybe I'd be more inclined to sort of understand his point of view. But I just think the way he's gone about this in this almost childish way severely undermines the harsh reality of the claims that are being made against him. Because if they are true, then he's done some pretty horrible stuff to some very young people mm. in his past. And doing this video seems like a very dated aggressive way to regain favour. Yeah. 
And for me, this is it. It now comes off the bat of his the first thing that he said after all these allegations came out came out um, came out in the past was that um, he did he did all of these things, and then tried to use his coming out story to try and to try and win over the public again. And I felt that was, this is the same kind of tactic he's using um, either his acting or sexuality or something like that to try and deflect from any of the actual issues that are happening. And I don't like that. You're right. It is cowardly. It is It is yeah. a very cowardly thing to and, do. And you know what? The sad part of it is, I think that if he really is as fucked up as, you know, his estranged brother says he is and all of these victims claim he is, then it, it kind of fits the bill, doesn't it? I could kind of imagine him being there on Christmas Eve thinking he was really smart and like releasing this thing that was really clever and was going to get people talking, but in the right way um, or in the way he deems right. And then watching this massively backfire and like, like the old man that he is probably getting frustrated and angry for not really understanding how modern social media works. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I can I can imagine him thinking this was a really good idea and then sitting there and watching it blow up in his face and getting really pissed off about it. Mm. Um, he's clearly not trying to make any more public appearances because I saw just before we came on the podcast, he submitted a statement to the Nantucket District Court um, where he's just been charged and is due to appear on January 7th. Um, he basically submitted a statement saying that he doesn't want to turn up in court like in person for the proceedings because he claims his appearance would amplify the negative publicity already generated in connection with this case. And the judge denied that motion. He was just like, no, you've got to fucking turn up on January 7th. Right. I don't know, man. I don't know. He's like, He's not he's, doing he, himself any favours, is he? He's not He's not doing himself any favours. And you know what? The people that do themselves favours in these situations are the people that either go through the whole legal process fair and square and state their case and are judged accordingly, or the people, you know, if we're talking about people that are maybe getting away with things that they shouldn't be getting away with, like, for example, Louis C.K., who's recently kind of been getting back onto the comedy circuit, he's managed to do that sort of just about by publicly apologising, going quiet for a long time, never making a mockery of the situation in any way, shape or form, and then slowly reintegrating himself back into like the public eye. Exactly. Doing a stunt, as it were, like this. I, I, I mean, I don't know what he was thinking. I don't think it's going to gain him any favours. And he, I, I was really fascinated by it on Christmas Eve. For a good few hours, I was like sitting there trying to figure it all out and trying to work out if there was some kind of like real meaning to it. And then I had a moment where I sat there and realised, you know what, like it's giving him far too much credit to be sitting here spending this much time thinking about the meaning of it. Mm, yeah. And what I should be doing is educating myself on the claims against him and what's being done to prove or disprove them. Yeah, I think I think you you're know? right. I had a very similar reaction when I heard it, but um I think I think it took me a day to process it and and like it at first it came with shock and then it, and then like I was just wanting to know more and more and more and then uh, now it's just it's just pure repulsion and that's sad but that one of one of my past favourite actors has done it again has made me because I thought I, I thought I was over being repulsed by Kevin Spacey yeah, I, thought I, I thought I could find, I, I thought I could put that to the back of my mind and focus on more positive things and not think about it again and now he's brought he's dredged it up all again 
Instead of like it just getting settled in court, the, the people's stories don't people the people that he's hurt allegedly we don't know, but the people that if he if he has hurt people that can be dealt with in a private way where we don't need to know anything about it and it, and it just the publicity can just die. Whereas now it's just it's just inflamed my passions against him again, and that's annoying. Yeah, mate, and and you know what? Like I you know before we move on, I I I I'm, have not got. A, a mime for law at all. I really don't understand how this stuff works. But surely, if he's kind of providing this, almost providing this statement claiming he's not guilty through the stuff he's saying but hiding behind a character in this video, if there are court proceedings moving against him, is that not obstructing justice to, to kind of go and court opinion like that? Or is that, I don't know if there's anything... Um, like, it, could, he be, could, could he be guilty of anything by releasing this video? Is, is it like... It could it could add on to the add on to the um, charges because I I once did some some time and I can't remember the exact term of it. I did some time. I did some time. <laughs> um, no, but I I once did a um, uh, work experience in a law firm and one of the um, I can't I can't really speak about the specifics of the trial because that would mean me breaking the law. But there was a there was a person who. Uh, one of his charges was that um, witness intimidation, and that is what this could perhaps be classed as. Because if you're posting these vid this video, you're obstructing the course of justice. But you could also be scaring your victims or um, or potential victims into speaking up just by the course, just just by doing this. It can act, it can act to actually make everything worse. I'm not mm. sure if he will be charged with it because uh, by the sounds of it, I think that adding on another charge. Um, with all of these charges that are going on at the moment, would just would just seem a bit silly, considering he's got so many life life in prison charges that he's having to face. Um, but yeah, it's a sad piece of news to start on. <laughs> no, it is. It is. Well, anyway, let's move on to something hopefully happier. What have you got for us, mate? Oh, trust me, it's happier. Uh, happy New Year, everyone. Um, so, <laughs> John Favreau, um, Star Wars Mandalorian. I mention this pretty much every week on the podcast. Oh, well, is this another one of your Mandalorian updates? Yeah. Fucking love it. No, but this is a good one. So, on Christmas Day, um, John Favreau posted on his Instagram page um, a picture of IG88 um, with a, with just a caption saying, Merry Christmas. Now, for those people who do not know who IG88 is, um, he is a droid that turns up in Empire Strikes Back uh, in the bounty hunter scene. Um, he is a he is a Pluto droid. I don't know what that exactly means. I I have read some IG88 comics in my time, but I I'm, I'm, I haven't got the origins yet. But I know that um, he was created um, like in a laboratory, realized his skill and desire to kill, um, left his creator, went rogue, and then became one of the most feared bounty hunters in the galaxy. And has and what's interesting about his character is he's a real fear of droids. So um, like his kryptonite is other droids. So it's kind of sort of like a human droid dynamic. So John Favreau is heavily hinting and implying that IG88 is going to be in the new Star Wars Mandalorian, which makes sense because uh, Mandalorian being about a bounty hunter, I think um, the most interesting part of this whole thing is that IG88 um, has a comic book arc in the, in the Dark Horse graphic novels, and um, what and part of that is that he collects a bounty on a member of the Crimson Dawn. Now, from those who remember back to our first podcast, the Crimson Dawn is the organisation that Darth Maul apparently is working for. So, cool, is, bloody hell, that's quite the throwback. 
It, yeah, I know. Hope people it? can keep up. <laughs> <laughs> but that it begs the question: Is the Crimson Dawn re- returning? And because does, they're going to have Darth Maul in the Mandalorian. Yes. No, not because Ooh. they're going to have Darth Maul in Mandalorian, but th- but maybe that will happen. I'm just explaining it in layman's terms for the non-Star non Wars nerds. It's a good shout. Um, Basically, Will's piece of news is there's a cool droid and possibly Darth Maul in the new Star Wars TV series. Well, there is a cool droid. Directed which... by the guy who's doing the Lion King. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> That's my news story. Summed up my mum will listen bite. and she'll be like, oh, okay, I get that bit now. Thanks, thanks buddy. Um, <laughs> so yeah, um, very exciting stuff. What's your second piece of news? It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. We had um, a cracking trailer come out over the over the festive season, which me and you have both discussed, but um, obviously it needs to be brought up. Uh, Jordan Peele's sophomore effort, his second film after Get Out, which was a huge success, is Us. Um, Us stars Lupita Nyong'o and Winston Duke, both very prominent black actor and actress who are in the Black Panther film. Lupita Nyong'o obviously goes back to 12 Years a Slave. Great, great roles. Um this trailer is terrifying. His new film is another psychological horror, which most of you have probably seen the trailer for now, but f- clearly follows the themes of duality. And Peel has gone on record to say that unlike Get Out, which was out in 2017, uh, the latest effort isn't going to be about race, but it's going to focus on the simple but compelling idea that we are our own worst enemies. Um, and that's very much embodied in the trailer. People have been analysing this trailer left, right and centre, trying to find hidden Easter eggs and clues to understand what's happening in the movie. But the overarching narrative is that a family of four go on holiday to a beach hut and they are stalked, well, kind of caught in their own home uh, by alternative versions of themselves that are evil and out to kill them. Um what did you think when you watched this trailer, mate? Because I thought it was brilliant. Like, the use of the use of music, the use the use of the way they they remix a really old hip hop classic song to kind of bring out these dark tones in the song. It's, it's I've got five on it, and I've listened to it a few times in the week since I watched this trailer. And you actually listen to the song and you think, how has no one thought this would be a great song to rework to have in a horror trailer before? Because it really like. You know, it was kind of just hiding there in plain sight. Mm. And I know that no, no decision Jordan Peele seems to make in these projects is arbitrary. Like, there'll be a definitive reason why it was done. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I it was terrific. I loved it, but I also... Th- it was terrifying. I, I think I'm going to need to go to the cinema and hold your hand for this film because I just... I don't know if I can hack it, Jake. I don't know if I can hack it. Um, yeah, mate. The Peter Yongo's like second self in the trailer. The alter ego. Yeah, the alter ego. It's 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 something about the eyes. The eyes being so beady, and just the way that they they do the head movements. It's it's proper horror. Um, well, we we spoke about this the other week when we were saying about the casting and the images first released, and this this whole thing about him, Jordan Peele, getting the cast to watch these ten horror films in a list for like a shared onset knowledge. Um, week thirty seven of the podcast. Yeah, mate, and it, it seems to have worked because I mean, this is yeah, like you said, Lupita Nyong'o's alter ego is the the most intense in the trailer, um, and there's a, there's a moment where she almost kind of has her head kind of arched up and moves her mouth kind of like you imagine a puppet like a marionette mm. um and it, yeah it's terrific like i really think it, it, we we could be on track to see the first like i don't know i think it probably would be a first but like an academy award for best actor or actress in a in a horror film 
Mm, maybe has, has, there ever, has there ever been a horror? We need, we need to look that up. Well, there, prob- anyway. there probably has been in the past when it, when there was like um, um, Alfred Hitchcock's films and etc. Yeah, very true. Yeah, very true. But modern horror, but definitely modern um, horror. Yeah. Oh, because yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds sounds amazing. And the last thing I'll say is, when I was reading around this the other day, I found that apparently Us is the second of at least four planned social thrillers from the mind of Jordan Peele. Um, which means Get Out was the first one, this is the second one. He's got at least two other ideas, kind of not on the back burner, but in kind of serious production wow. areas now. Um, also with Blumhouse, which is pretty cool. That means that for the next kind of like six years, we could probably see a Jordan Peele horror film every couple of years. That would be very, very which cool. Which is exciting. Um, it's my- very exciting. to do To do horror in this level of consistency across this many ind- well, seemingly independent films. We don't know if there's a shared universe between them yet or not. There could be. I'm just excited to see Lupita Nyong'o again. Not that I haven't seen her previously. Um, it's just after 12 Years a Slave and then after Star Wars, there's just been a bit of a lull between her career really popping off, especially after winning Academy Award. It's, it's kind of like she's not really got the parts that the other actresses who have won Academy Awards um, recently have got after they've won the Academy Award. She's not got any big TV show. She's not got any big... Um, she got Star Wars, but as a very small bit part into that. Remember remember, she was in The Jungle Book, the John She Favre was Jungle in The Book Jungle Book, that, that's and, true. And she, she also is due to be in the upcoming Star Wars film. Oh, she's back as Max. Uh, or oh, oh, yeah, no, she was, in, she was in The Last Jedi, wasn't she? Yes, she was in The Last Jedi. No, no, not in The Last Jedi. Um, Force Awakens. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yes, excited to see her again. My second piece of news, um, it's go- going with the line of horror. I've got another horror piece of news. Um, A Quiet Place 2. We've talked about the sequel um, previously. We've talked about whether John Krasinski is going to write it or direct it. Um, he has confirmed to write the sequel. Um, but he's just, he's he speaking to, I think... Uh, the playlist, uh, which I didn't even know was a thing, um, but, it's, <laughs> but it's a thing. Um, he has said he has explained what his idea is for the sequel, which I think is quite interesting. I think you can pick up quite a lot of interesting hints about what could it it could be. Um, he says this: the beauty of it is that it's an expansion of a world. Most sequels are about the return of a villain or a hero, and you have to build a totally new story around your favourite hero or villain. With this sequel, we actually have the world to deal with. The world is actually the star of the movie. So, this set of circumstances, how the rest of the world is dealing with this apocalyptic tragedy, is the fun of it then. That's what drew me back. Um, I think the thing to pick up from this is the word world. Um, For me, that suggests potentially that he is going to do a a similar horror, but with a different scenario, a different part of the world explored, different characters, not the family um, of the first film. Now, that's what I was wanting from A Quiet Place 2 sequel. I wanted a different story. I didn't want a continuation. Um, I I don't know. What do you think of it? Yeah, I think it's cool. I, I definitely think there's no room to carry on the role of... I mean, who's left in the film at the end? It's the mother and the two kids, right? Yeah. And they seemingly seemingly go after the other two monsters. Um, I don't think there's any room to f- carry on that family story. I think it's kind of come full circle. Um, but I do think what they created was so clever. Um, and there is so much room for another film following another group but with some other kind of dynamic. I don't know... 
I, I mean, I had a really terrible thought once, well, for a Quiet Place sequel, which just like it would be deemed <laughs> so insensitive. But I mean, hypothetically speaking, what would happen to like severely autistic people in the world of a Quiet Place? That's a good would, point. Would they just be? Would they just be abandoned? Or people with? Or, or, pe- or people? With, or people with Tourette's? I was about to say, yeah, they'd yeah. They'd be fucked, wouldn't they? They would have quite fun. literally fuck, and then they die. Um, yeah, I suppose that's true. Well, I suppose that's. I, I, don't the know, I don't know if that's. I don't know. I don't know if that's enough to flesh out like a a, a film about kind of like a a band of autistic survivors who have been outcasted by the rest of humanity because they make noises they can't control. Hmm. I don't know. Well, I suppose I suppose you could play with that with, with maybe Ace. I think if it was a band of characters, it'd be a disaster. But you could play with the idea with um like one like a, a member of the family. I'd like to see it. I like I think for me the whole thing about this sequel is I want it to be a d- dynamic change but not a plot change really. Yeah. Like I want I want to be attached to the characters that I'm introduced to. Um, and therefore I will, I will believe I'll be scared for them as opposed yeah. to them just them creating new rules. I don't want to create new rules in this world that much. I want to, st- I want to maybe, maybe add one or two new rules to the format, but not change it too much. Cause otherwise it just gets a bit too cartoony and you, you can't maybe, build on it. You want to maybe understand a little bit more about the creatures or where they came from. Do do is is that a question? Do I? Well, no. I, I personally, I do. I I I think that this film, if it just carried on the same level of mysterious around the creatures, I don't think it would give you enough. Now, I think you've got to be very careful with how you reveal and how much you reveal about the creatures' origin and all that kind of stuff. But I, frankly, I think if they make another film, which follows a new, interesting, fleshed-out range of of, of human characters, but doesn't really change anything on the creature front. I think that it's going to be accused of being samey regardless. Mm. I think they either I think they either need to introduce other forms of creature that stalk them um or they need to kind of give you because they give you little tidbits. They give you kind of like the stuff in his basement where he's trying to work out where they came from and why they exist and all this. So it's not like they've been against teasing where the creatures came from in the original film. I just think that they they do need to give you a little bit more next time round to make it seem like it's worth the trip. I get that. I just don't want them to be completely dis- demystified because then then it leaves no room for the for I mean I don't do, I don't know if I want possi- possible sequels. Um but I, w- I would like it. To, I would like to be left on a on a cliffhanger. What I'd probably like is sort of like small Easter eggs of teasers throughout littered throughout the movie, and then one big twist about three quarters of the way through, like a yeah. change of like how everyone sees the the creatures. A change of like maybe it's maybe it's not because of um, maybe it's not because of the because of um, being quiet. It's a it's a specific type of quietness that changes the game. I'd like that. Mm. That'd be fun. Um, mm. We yeah. should call up John Krasinski. We've got some fucking ideas for him, man. Yeah. Um, John, have you thought about autistic children? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would go so well. <laughs> uh, right. Anyway, my final bit slash bits of news. I'm always throwing one more in there. Um, <laughs> when have you had we... a new segment where it's not a joint a joined piece of news at some description? <laughs> Mate, I'm always I'm so sneaky and always before we start recording the world, I'm like we need to keep this to a certain length and I'm the one that fucks it up. <laughs> um, 
Stranger Things season three. Now, this isn't huge news. I mean, it depends on how much you care about Stranger Things. But basically, we've got a date, July 4th, Independence Day 2019. We've had a really cool poster, which says at the top of it, one summer can change everything. Um, and you've got all the kids there and Eleven and Mike are holding hands. It's really sweet. But you can see like these ominous red vines creeping up on them from the edges of the poster. Um, they also released a weird video that doesn't really make any sense and is all kind of like found footage. Um, I'm very excited for it, but I'm not in a rush. Like I'm not like, oh, my God, get me Stranger Things season three now. Um, I think season two did a good job of living up to the first season, but stumbled a bit. It was a bit too long. Um, have you watched it, Will? I've not watched any of it, no. Yeah, all right. I don't know whether to binge it completely or if I want to do it like systematically. I, oh, you think... won't, you, you'll watch it and you won't have a choice. You'll want, you'll want to binge it. Is it, it is a, a binging binge. show? It, it, it is a binging show, 100%. Right. Um, but my problem with the second season was it fleshes out the characters, it brings new characters in, it kind of... You know, it, it, it's got such a great young cast of actors, but it took who, like, it changed the dynamic from the first season largely revolving around one of the boys as, like, the leader of the group to the second season kind of being about one of the other boys in a completely different way and really giving him his time to shine. Right. Um, and it was really good. And I think season three will change it up again. They introduced some new characters in season two that are like, you, they were really enjoyable, but you still want to learn more about them as people. Um, it will be good. It will be good. I'm just worried that there was a bit of a cringy storyline that started developing in season two and involving Eleven, the girl, and people who've watched it will know what I mean, where it had a whole side episode just involving her. And for me, that was where it started to get a bit farcical and lose sight of what it is. It started to juggle a bit too much. Yeah. So I think it would be good. I think it would be great. I just am wary of it they haven't announced how many episodes they're going to be but if i'm honest i'd rather it goes back to the six episodes of the first season rather than the eight episodes of the second season yeah i just i just don't want i suppose having not watched it, i can't comment too much but I, I i from what you're saying it i don't want it to do what orange is the new black did which was try get out forever a drag it out forever and b the first season is great because it's and it's slightly compact you're following one narrative through line whereas in the later seasons you just sort of find yourself asking what's the point of me watching this because yeah. there's no it's just about individual character stories and it just it just it the through lines become far further and further away and you're yeah. watching episodes predominantly because you like the people in that episode and some episodes you won't like because you don't like that person and i hope that doesn't isn't the case with strange things true true i think um having said that though the duffer brothers like they've confirmed they're doing season three and season four and they're very good at juggling all these different narratives in a way that I think a lot of shows really kind of struggle with. Mm. Um, but you've got to remember that Genji Cohen, who did Orange is the New Black, has a penchant for just dragging her things out until they're cancelled. Like, she did fucking seven seasons of Weeds until, like, the network were just like, no, like, none of us <laughs> want another season. Like, fucking cap it off, we're done. Like, if Netflix was as big back then, they probably would have bought it off her and done another two seasons. But let's face it, no one wanted a season eight of Weeds. No. Just like no one really wanted a season five or six of Orange is the New Black. It's why, it's why, it's why Weeds has aged so terribly. Because cause, cause the, it used to be a... I, I used to remember when, like, back in the day, people used to talk about Weeds when it was, like, series one, series two. Where it's like, oh, that's Weeds. It's a funny show. And then now, no one talks about Weeds. 
No, I just went through actually. I went back and powered through it all because I only watched the first three seasons, and now I know why. Because <laughs> the following four seasons are so dreadful, um, but they've got this weird kind of charm about them. Anyway, our podcast is not about weeds. What's your final bit of news, Will? Before I talk about my last bit, which I snuck in there before we then review two films. <laughs> Time is ticking. Um, <laughs> um, so my third piece of news. Um, it's I, it's quite short as a piece of news, but I don't know if you're aware of the film, so I'm going to go into lots of detail. Um, go on, mate, go. So the piece of news is that um, the film Fighting With My Family has got a picture attached to it. That's the piece of news. The question I ask you is, do you know what that film is about? Oh, it rings a bell. What is it? Fighting With My Family is the Paige, the wrestler, biopic that's coming out um, very, very soon. Um, it was pr- The Paige? Page, as in the wrestler page. She's a WWE is that a man wrestler. or a woman? Woman. Um, oh. It's a it's a fascinating true story. I used to follow Paige. I think she is a, a very very good wrestler. Um, she was never my favourite, but she did usher in a whole new era of women's wrestling. A lot of people credit Paige in changing the game again for women's wrestling because it went backwards for about five for about ten years, where it was the D. They changed from the women's championship to the divas championship, which had a pink butterfly on it, and their <laughs> pillow fights were back. And it was and every and it was just based on like women slapping each other like in a sexy way. And then Paige and a couple of other new bloods brought some real integrity back to the division. Um, but Paige's story is fascinating. She's born in Norfolk. Um, she is a British wrestler. She start she was uh, both her mother and father are wrestlers. Um, she wrestled her first match when she was thirteen because a wrestler cancelled, and so her father was like, "Get in the ring." And she started wrestling then. Was signed to the WWE at a very early age. Um, was performing around the world at 18. Um, recently, she, she, had a, she had a scandal where um, she was taken away from the WWE because of failing two drug tests, um, although that has been since been really, really queried. Um, and what, her, whether she actually had taken drugs or not? Um, she'd taken drugs, but it was in that it, it was not like... It's one of those drugs that's like on the cusp of being legal. Like it's a sport drug for sport things and the WWE oh, don't okay. allow it. So, so, so what, she, what she took is being debated. Exactly, yes. Right. Um, and then she had a sex tape which, which, which released, um, which was very sad because all the, she lost a lot of uh, credibility in her career. But two other wrestlers um, were also in that sex video with her. And they have not been punished, and it's treated as a joke in the WWE. They they laugh about it, like that everyone, like the whole crowd, like smiles and etc. Whereas it meant that Paige didn't return to the WWE. She returned late early last year, and then she had a very bad back injury, which has meant that she's not been able to wrestle since her career is over. I think at the I think she is aged 25, 26, and her career Jesus. is over. Jesus. And yeah. just, they're making a movie about her already. Yeah, they make, they, they've been making this movie for a long time. Uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson is the producer. Lena really? He- Lena Headey is the mother um, of Paige. What? Nick Frost is the father. And it's directed what? and written by Stephen Merchant. Oh, wicked. So it's going to be a very quintessential British take on quite a sordid, difficult bo- uh, fighting life. Yes, I think so. I did watch rewatch the trailer. With some explosions because The Rock Johnson's... Oh, well, game. this is the problem. There's the whole trailer centres about the centres around The Rock because oh, it's is The Rock. Is he in it? He's in the film and he's like, and he's taken on this role, which is just not true, of like Paige's be- like de facto mentor. 
and it just doesn't work. I'm sure very worried about true? it. I'm 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 pretty certain it's not true. I've I mean I've followed Paige's career since I was about sixteen, so it's I've, I'm pretty certain it's not true. If it it might be, but I'm I'm very sure it's not. The Rock is the Rock is just. It was a big surprise to everyone when The Rock um, said that he was producing this film, and it has been his baby. But I do worry that he is going to play too much of a factor in it. But it is written by Stephen Merchant. All the stuff that is filmed in the UK looks really, really good. But it's also done by WWE Studios, and they've made films like The Marine. And The Marine oh, is a terrible the John, film. The John Cena classic. Exactly. Mate, so, they didn't make one Marine. They made fucking four Marine films, but John Cena was only in the first one. I know. And, and that's the best Marine film. I, you know what? Call me basic, but I remember I have fond memories of loving that film when I was younger. Well, because it's got explosions. I loved all films with explosions when I was younger. Yeah, true. <laughs> that was that was that was John Cena acting before he properly considered being an actor. Yeah, that's true. That was. John and now Cena he's now he's now he's beginning. genuinely trying to make a go of it, isn't he? Yeah. Um, fascinating. When when do we expect this film out? Um, I it's sometime in 2019. It's not been confirmed yet. Okay. Mm, very cool. Very cool. Now, final bit of news before we start talking about Bird Box, the film of the month. Um, 2019 also has a lot of superhero movies. Well, <laughs> do you know how? Do you know how? Do you know how many superhero movies are coming out in 2019? It's a good question. Uh, okay, uh, so super- hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's start. Let's start this bit of trivia by how many superhero movies came out in theaters in 2018? Uh, like, do you know that? I don't could know. You, how many, how can, many, how many can, do you reckon you could name? I could I could name, I'd say, at least eight or nine. Go, give it a go. Give it a go. Ooh, okay, here we go. Superhero films from 2018. Um, and let's let's remove let's remove Teen Titans Go and Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse because they're animated. I'm oh, only talking live action. Well, that might that might scupper me. Um Avengers Infinity War. One. Um Ant-Man and the Wasp. Two. Um Aquaman. Three. Wonder Woman? No, Justice League. No. Wonder Woman Justice League didn't come out. Um, no. Screw it. Um, what else came out this year? I'm, my mind's now gone blank, as it always does. We've, in trivia. We've, reviewed, we've reviewed one more of the ones that you failed to mention. Yes, we have, um, which is why I'm getting annoyed at myself. Um, what did we review? That's, um, Incredibles. No. <laughs> Doesn't count? All right, so I'll tell you, I'll tell you. If you don't know them all, how many do you think there were in 2018? Live action superheroes? I think there's about eight. Okay. There's six. Okay. They are Black Panther. Yep. Avengers Infinity War. Deadpool 2. Ant-Man and the Wasp. Venom and Aquaman. Right, yep. Now, there are ten live action superhero movies coming out in 2019. That is more than there's ever been in one year before. In 2017 and 2016, there were only seven movies. 2015 had just three. 2014 had four. So we have got ten coming out in one year next year. These are Glass, yep. Captain Marvel, yeah. Shazam, Very excited. Hell, Hellboy, yep. Avengers Endgame, Spider-Man Far From Home. Oh my gosh. I keep on forgetting that's coming out next year. Yeah, wow. Man. July July 5th. X-Men Dark Phoenix. Yep. The New Mutants. Is is it? And The Joker. Yes. 10 comic book movies. Well, Pretty we've got incredible. we've got 10 weeks of the podcast done there. That's great. 
And there's also the rumour that Spawn is going to be out next year, which is the movie that Jamie Foxx has been trying to make for years about the anti-hero. And it's now finally picked up, been picked up with Jeremy Renner also in some role that's quite pivotal in the film. And they've made a big fuss about it recently by saying that Todd McFarlane's filming it and apparently it's going to be a really like shocking, massively R-rated, not funny in any way, just like dark, uncomfortable, not like anti-hero movie. That'll be interesting. Sounds juicy. I can't Sounds wait. juicy. But there's there's rumours Wonder- that, that there's rumours that, that might be the tenth film, which is due out around Christmas time next year. Is Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four coming out next year? No, it was pushed back. It was meant to come out in November next year, but it was pushed back to July twenty twenty because of the Shazam film. Right. Mm. Not really sure why it had to move, because Shazam comes out in April. But to be honest, these are all the films coming out between like March and October. They're all coming out between March and October next year. And you've also got to remember there is a new Toy Story film. There's fucking The Lion King. There's Dumbo. There's like all these crazy big films coming out next year. I think if you actually lined it all up, there's probably more hyped releases next year than there's ever been in cinema. Wow. Yeah, I think you're probably going to be going to be a big year. It's going to be a big year. Good thing we've got a podcast to review it all. (laughs) (laughs) Cannot wait. Right. Now, Will, I think we should get on to some reviewing. I think good old fashioned reviewing. Remember that thing that we're meant to do in our podcast? Yes. We never seem to find the time to do. Well, do you remember remember when we always say that we're going to do a short news segment? It's always, always, always 34 minutes. Mate, we might be going for a record here. It was 41 minutes. You're joking. Mental. Congratulations. Right. Anyway, film one of the week, Bird Box. This is the new... um, All right, when I first saw the trailer, I thought it was a bit of a quiet place rip-off. I'm not going to lie. I have since, having watched it, I'm completely aware that it does its own thing and it's not a quiet place rip-off. I just, when I saw it and it was like, oh, instead of not being able to make any noise, they just can't see anything. I thought, oh, here we fucking go. Um, There's a reason this film has, as Netflix claimed, had more than 45 million accounts watch it since it came out on like the 22nd of December. It's fucking intense. It's got a, a star-studded cast, and it's pretty damn enjoyable, isn't it? Yeah, it's fun. I, I, I liked, I liked it a lot. I mean, spo- spoilers for everyone. Not even spoilers for everyone. I watched this film very recently. Um, but what, what, what that means, and by very recently, I mean the day that we're recording. And what that has meant is that I can, is that I am still on the buzz of what that this film is about, and. I don't know if it's the scariest film I've ever watched, but it is intense. It's for me, it's a thriller over a horror, and I yeah. really like that dystopian um, thriller. Dystopian thriller. It reminded me kind of what The Road did a bit in the in the sort of the scenes at the scenes at the end. It's just the sort of the wilderness and a few a few people. Um, I think what it does quite nicely is balance those the, the scenes of the wilderness and the dark, and not many, not many people knowing. Um, and and not many people talking on screen in intense moments to um, the moments of chaos at the beginning of this outbreak. But um, do you you want me to explain what what it's about? Well, I mean, why don't you just... I mean, judging by how many people have watched this movie, anyone listening has probably seen it. Yeah. Do you want to tell me what you thought was good about this film? Yeah. Um, What did you you enjoy and what actors did you find particularly impressive? 
Um, in terms of actors, I, in terms of in terms of what I enjoyed first, actually, let's go with that. I liked the the centering on family in the film. I thought it was really interesting how you started the film with a um, Sandra Bullock as a quite a mother who doesn't know what she wants, uh, is quite a loner. She doesn't know what motherhood's going to be about. She's not really excited for it at all. She's making decisions of adoption, etc. And she gets forced into this situation where she has to not only kind of kind of mother and look after and protect pe- um, people who she's met for the first time in this catastrophe, but also being pregnant and then birthing children who, um, are, who, are, who are born into a world of carnage and chaos. Um, I liked that theme of it. I liked the, how that storyline progressed. I... I think I think it could have gone a bit further, but I also think that it it, it was um, quite quite stunning. What I also liked is um, I liked the fact that sometimes you sometimes you knew what was going to happen. Um, you knew that something was building up to be a terrifying thing, um, or something that was just going to be carnage. But they'd ha- they they do the classic horror film move um, trick of um, having a really happy moment. And then it turns sour immediately. I thought they used that really effectively for the, throughout the film. Um, what I also love about it is that there, there's multiple scenes in the forest, and the scenes in the forest are stunning. They, they the, the cinematography in them is gorgeous. The scapes they create are beautiful. Um, the scene in the rapids um, at the end is it's filmed fantastically, where you you're sort of rocking with the boat as the as the boat goes down the stream. Um, I think that's all wonderful. Um, what do you think? What are your positive moments from this film? So I thought it was very frightening and it was very effective. And when it when it does that well, it works really well. Um, I think the little girl and the little boy are, are excellent. Uh, the little girl especially, I think she is she is phenomenal. She is like she's absolutely adorable and she she does this little frightened face where she's trying to act brave but her little lips quivering and i just like i couldn't get past that like i was sat there the other night watching this with my mum and she was thinking like oh my god it's like you know it's it's unreal like mm. the way this little girl's acting um i thought sandra bullock does a terrific job i think travante rhodes is a really compelling kind of co-lead for the majority of the film i love travante um, rhodes as general I'll, general I'll, 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 yeah, so do I, man. I mean, he was phenomenal in Moonlight. Um, he was the best part of the Predator. Um, he just, yeah, he keeps going from strength to strength for me. Um, and I think that their kind of relationship is quite believable. Um, in a film where I thought a lot of stuff wasn't very believable and a lot of it was quite one-dimensional. So my biggest thing with this film was it wasn't too long. Um, Sandra Bullock, Trevante Rose and the, the kids were great. Um, I thought Tom Hollander, who turns up as Gary, the guy who fucks everyone's life up kind of halfway through the film, was excellent. Tom Hollander is... Um, <sighs> he's such a good actor. He's such a good actor. Um, I'm just, he, I, he, I didn't he, know he was he turning ju- up. He, 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 he just played Miami in Bohemian Rhapsody and he was, you know, after Rami Malek, he, I, I would say he was my second favourite person in the film. Yeah, correct. Um, he's terrific. Everything that he does is great at the moment. And what a lovely surprise um, for him. To, I didn't know that he was turning up yeah. in this film. And I was like, oh, yeah. it's Tom Hollander. I love Tom Hollander. Yeah, just great, great little castings like that. Like this, and, it, and like I said, when it when it is intense, 
it does work really well. And I think I, I gravitated more towards the scenes, like you said, in the wilderness, because Sandra Bullock is just, she's illuminating. Like, mm. She's such a good actress. Um, where this film fell flat for me was in the character stuff. So even Travante Rhodes and Sandra Bullock's characters, Mallory and Tom, I thought were severely, like, like very poorly fleshed out. Um, I found them quite unlikable people acted by very exceptional actors. Um, the same for John Malkovich. I mean, you've got one of the greatest actors in the world in this film. And largely, I would say, because of the script, he is reduced to a, an incredibly one-note, typical douchebag character that never even truly gets a redemption. Uh, like... It, it, Again, even his like moment of kind of trying to save the day fell flat for me. Um, Sarah Paulson plays Sandra Bullock's sister in the opening scenes. And I, I, t I tell you what, mate, I'm getting Sarah Paulson fatigue. She doesn't do anything new. She plays herself in everything that she's doing, even if it is a bit creepy in American Horror Story. And I'm really looking for her to have that role. Oh, my God, I'm talking like Simon Cowell on The X Factor. <laughs> I'm, I'm, really, I'm really looking for that role from her that convinces me that she can act and it isn't just an interesting person in a film. Yeah. You, what you're looking, what you're she's, looking she's, for, Jake, is that X Factor. I am. Sarah Paulson sucks. Um, she's very also, good in People vs. OJ. Uh, yeah, but again, she's playing herself. I yeah. I I've saw interviews with Mar Marsha Clark, and she and she does sound like Marsha Clark. But I don't, but you you are right. I don't know if that's more about casting as opposed to if, if she's yeah. genuinely good. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I take your point. I take your point. But I agree. Point. I do um, agree. She does play herself. Like she played herself in Ocean's Eight. One of the funniest castings in this for me was Machine Gun Kelly. <laughs> so you know who I'm talking about, right? This is the skinny white guy who, in the film, does nothing but complain and then steal a car. And there's literally no context given to whether him and his pseudo girlfriend survive or not. They just about a third of the way through the film leave the group. And I thought back to it. He doesn't contribute in any way. And they don't need another arsehole in the group dynamic because they've already got John Malkovich. So I don't know whether in the book version of Bird Box, which came out in 2014, which is what this was very rapidly adapted from, I don't know if he, the, the character of Felix, is he's got more depth in the book. I'm dead curious, actually. When I've got the time, I want to read the book now because I want to know how the characters... I, I want to know. I want to know whether it. Yeah, I, I want to know if it was the script that gave the characters the lack of depth, or whether they lack depth in the book as well, yeah. and the script is doing the book justice. I'm very curious because coming down to it for me, kind of like full. So I don't have a lot to say about this film other than this. It's very easy when you're watching it to draw comparisons to A Quiet Place. It's another inventive thriller that plays with kind of like senses that came out this year. Um, also, an incredibly intense film also very family-centred. The problem with this film compared to A Quiet Place for me is that A Quiet Place had huge bouts of intensity, beautiful cinematography, much akin to what Bird Box has done here. Susan Beer is, you know, she's the woman who directed The Night Manager and that intensity has travelled over. She's done a really good job with Bird Box. It is, at its peak, incredibly captivating. But where A Quiet Place has 
beautifully realized characters and a really organic family dynamic that is truly like in its heart in its strongest moments where for example john krasinski like sacrifices himself it's it is truly it's so heartfelt and it's one of the most impressive things i've ever seen this even when yes like sandra bullock in the later scenes of the film she does a really terrific job of, of working with the, the children and the acting really does pick up I think because, for me, she was cemented very early on as a character who I don't identify with at all, don't really like in any way, shape or form, but is just acted by a good actress, I struggled to f find it believable. Mm. And I didn't, I didn't really feel her progression from a bit of a depressed but also kind of like cynical artist who thinks she'll never be able to achieve kind of a, a shared connection with someone again to a... A, a fully fledged mother who's taken kids through like great hardship, but has kind of finally realized how to connect with them. I, I, it lacked that substance for me, which maybe it has in the book, just because I think they were so heavy handed with way the, the way the character was set up in the first third of the film. Yeah, I can get, I can, I can get down with that. I think my, I don't have much to say about this film either, but I think one of my thoughts is that for heart, names are very important naming a film naming a book naming anything is very very important if you're going to call a film bird box you have to give me some you you have to give me more than just subtle imp, imp, either subtle implications of maybe bird box meaning this and bird box meaning that or just um just the bird box meaning there are actually birds in a box which is the case of this film um, I just I wanted there to be some revelation where you're like, ah, this is the reason why the film is called Bird Box because actually it this it's a term it means more than this, and because of the lack of substance that you were discussing, I was just wondering for I, apart from the fact that birds are like birds are a mechanism for people to understand where the monster is. There was nothing else like be, nothing else drawn out from that name and i was just thinking like why not do what you say on the tin of the quiet place and just make it about the sensory stuff because that's mm, the story yeah. you're telling make the name about the sensory stuff because if you're promising a film about a bird box and it's not i'm not to say that bird box has to be treated literally quite the opposite i'm saying that you just need to make these metaphors and allusions have some substance. And for me, it just felt like it didn't. And I felt like the film as a whole, that sums up quite nicely. Yeah. I, I also think that in many ways, flinging it forward into the five years later storyline a bit sooner and having a bit less time spent on the group in the house narrative would have made for a more cinematic experience. Correct. I think that there was so much to do with the post-apocalyptic landscape and they didn't really even scratch the surface of it. Um, I I also thought that some of it, like the ending, is sweet, but I know that if I was in any other mood when I was watching that film, I would have been frustrated by it because it is quite farcical the way this film ends with them discovering a blind school and realizing that the blind people are perfectly capable of living and they take them in as a safe haven. I just found it a little bit like, oh, really? Like after how intense and serious this film's been, this is the way it's ending. Um, yeah, I didn't want that as well because I because they set it up that 12 minutes before the end of the film, there's this beautiful speech that Sandra Bullock does about finishing the story off. Um, and then they have the hug, and it's a really touching moment. And then and then it gets scary again. And I was like, you've had the touching moment. It's a horror film. You can now shock us. Give us a shock ending. 
And I, I kind of yeah. left it like, I understand that this film is like, film has got 45 million account streams and it's got an amazing cast and it's shot really well and it's got an interesting director behind it. But what are, what are people clamoring about? This is the thing. What like what is the clamor? Because it doesn't have a shocking end. It's gruesome, but it's not that it's nothing that the Quiet Place hasn't done before. Um, it's it's interesting. I think it I is. Th- I, I I think in many ways it's gained all of this viewership over the Christmas period because word has spread like wildfire that this is a Sandra Bullock film, and most middle aged men and women can get on with a Sandra Bullock film. And probably grandparents who are visiting for the holidays can think, oh, that's that woman that did the blind side and gravity. Or you know what and I mean? Miscongeniality, like, yeah. Well that was Yeah. Yes. Like so it's it's someone that they're familiar with. It's massively marketed around her. Mm. Um it's marketed around a family dynamic, and the, none of the trailers go particularly deep into how violent it is. So I think a lot of people felt comfortable watching it. I think if they'd shown more footage of like people killing themselves in the trailers, I think it would have put a lot of people off. Um, and the gore is realistic, but it's nothing that you've ever seen before, if that makes sense. I thought, I thought some of it was a bit silly. Like that bit, the bit where everything goes to shit with Tom Hollander turning up halfway through the film, the bit where the woman, the actress from Dumpling, the other one who was also having a baby alongside Sandra Bullock, sees the light and she, like, jumps out of the window. It's, like, I don't know, but I just thought it was poorly choreographed and it came off looking really stupid. Yeah. And I I burst out laughing. And I'm not the only person to say that. I've been online and there's already, like, memes about her jumping out of the window and it being a funny bit that shouldn't have been funny and all this kind of stuff. Um, Well, this is... And I also, I also, and this, this is maybe getting a little bit, this is maybe looking into it a little bit too deep. But when it's kind of revealed that sane people see the creature and commit suicide, but the mentally in like unstable people see the creature and want to share its joy with everyone rather than kill themselves, it seemingly reverses their suicidal thoughts. Where, where the fuck is the line yeah. in people that leads to a change of response? I know that's quite a trivial thing, but is it? Because... It, did it did it was it that you had to be like a certain level of copus mentis to want to commit suicide if you saw the creature or like what like what was the criteria yeah exactly your change your change in response to the creature i also thought that and I, maybe i'm shit talking this film a bit too much now but yes the final scenes are quite dramatic where she gives that monologue in the woods and the kids get lost and the wind is chasing them but i did sit there <laughs> and think i did sit there and think oh my fucking god like no matter how well trent reznor and atticus ross did the soundtrack by the way they did a great fucking job great like, kudos to those guys a, a side note on them they won an Academy Award for their work on the Social Network back in 2010. <gasps> Did they do they, the Social Network soundtrack? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. love that they, soundtrack. They've also gone on to do Gone Girl and Before the Flood, and they've got a bunch of other things in the pipeline. They're great. They're a really good soundtrack duo. Um, and they really do carry this film. But there was a moment in those final intense scenes where I was sort of thinking, if it wasn't for how good the music was right now, how great the ambience is and how well this is shot, I'd be getting a bit frustrated because... I think, along with a fair few people online, it the the effect of the monster wore off the longer the film went on because you didn't ever see it in any way, shape or form. And I don't know, I, I, I'm not saying they had to reveal the creature, but I just think the impact 
on me was lost towards the end because what seemed to be a great threat to them throughout the film was not the creature but was the other people that were trying to kill them mm. throughout the film. So when it got to that culminating scene where the wind is chasing them and it's getting all really dramatic, I sort of sat there and thought, well, I mean, it's quite obvious the kids aren't going to turn, take their fucking blindfolds off and if they don't take them off, they're not really in harm's way because this creature hasn't been able to impact anyone that's not been able to see it. So it will like blow as many leaves as it wants, but nothing's, <laughs> no, 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 nothing's going to come of this. And that, for me, was a moment where I disconnected from it and found it less intense. Yeah, I get, I get that. I, th- I, think, I think this film is a... Yeah, shall we go on to critics' quotes? Because I think my, my best description um, sums up pretty, pretty, pretty well. Yeah, go for it, mate, go uh, for it. My best description is Jeffrey Lyles from Lyles Movie Files, and he says, a pretty good, if not occasionally frustrating thriller, a few missteps away from being truly special, which I think is fair. I think it was pretty good. I think that's the best thing you can say yeah, about it. I think it is. Um, my best description is from Justin Chang of the Los Angeles Times, and he said, you've seen this all many times before, which doesn't mean you'll mind seeing it again. Yeah, 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 very much that. Like, it's good. I, I get why this was a popular holiday movie, but I'm not in a rush to watch it again. No. And there are there are much better films out there. Correct. Um, my most savage. Um, I wonder if we have the same one. I'm interested because I, I, I there was one. Is, that it, stuck is out. it Nick Rogers from the Midwest Film? Oh, panel. it's not. Oh, there we go. Um, it's, oh, go on then. It's Emily Yoshida from New York Magazine slash Vulture, which I assume that means that they've done the same thing. Um, she says, I care as much about the people who ran away in its fiction now as I did before I watched them for two hours, which is to say, not at all. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, mine is from Nick Rogers of the Midwest Film Journal, and he said, save, a re- save for a reasonably suspenseful scene at the midpoint, Bird Box is a jacuzzi fart indulgence of the same mealy-mouthed, meat-headed morality debates about the world's end that you find in any given The Walking Dead moment. At least it's shorter. <laughs> yeah. Very true. Towards the end, this did start to feel a bit Walking Dead for me. It started to feel a bit cumbersome, and the characters that it was built, the framework was built upon, weren't strong enough to lead it through to its finale. That was my issue. Yeah. That was my issue. It was poor characterization, and you had incredible actors, an incredible director. It, it all looked stunning, but the script just wasn't there for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, best moment, what do you think? Uh, I think, like you said, the rapid seed is pretty pretty incredible. Um, to, to be able to shoot that alone is pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, I also, just in general, I liked some of the more tender moments between Sandra Bullock and Trevante Rhodes. I thought they were quite convincing, even if I didn't particularly like either of the characters. Yeah, I'd agree with that. My two favourite, I have two favourites. One is Tom Hollander's whole bit. Yeah, just him turning great. up generally, fantastic, one actor. And my second bit is the one of the very first moments of the film where um, Sandra Bullock is explaining what you need to do. And it's like she's addressing you as the audience and, and it, it gets you into the film straight away. You know exactly where you stand um, with it. And I like that. I, like, I, I, I think that was probably at the film at its most effective was in that opening scene. It, was, it did feel like it was building up something truly scary. Yeah, so yeah, I, yeah. Uh, I think, I think, I think that I think that it's fine. Um, in terms of so, rating, yeah, I, what would you give it? Six. I'm gonna give it six. Mm, I'm gonna give it 
See, I want to give it more because it was really terrific. I'm going to give it a 6.5. Yeah, fair. It's got no replay value whatsoever for me. Um, but it was a, it, like, I wasn't bored. I wasn't checking my watch. It was bloody enjoyable, if a bit cheesy. Yeah, exactly. And I think I think it's a film that I probably will never go and revisit again. Not in a bad way, but I'm not I'm not, I'm not annoyed that I've never seen it. Um, yeah, very yeah. true. And I'm happy that I've seen um, a film where Tom Hollander does such a great job. I might just re I might rewatch him do that. I like that Sandra Bullock is getting recut. Sandra Bullock went through a couple of um, a period in Hollywood just after um, her winning that Oscar, where she just didn't get many jobs. And this year has been kind of a resurgence. And I like that. She's a very good actress. Um, so, yeah, hopefully this film will mean that Tom Hollander will get more crazy villain roles. And oh, we'll, I hope which so. Which I, I really hope so. And will mean that Sandra Bullock is doing more convincing Oscar-worthy stuff in the future. Yeah, we shall see. We shall see. Um, on to another bloody enjoyable film. Mary Poppins Returns. Oh, Mate, after... Do you know when the first Mary Poppins film came out? 1950... No, 60. It was 54 years ago, whenever that is. Maths doesn't <laughs> serve me Maths doesn't serve me too good no more. Um, but now she's back. Um, now played by Emily Blunt, who was in the aforementioned A Quiet Place. Um, she is terrific. If anything, this film shows how versatile she is as an actress to go from being in one of the biggest horror movies of the year um, literally giving birth um, to taking on the classic eponymous role that is Mary Poppins. Mm. I think Emily Dole, Blunt, doling out spoons, spoons full of sugar, and they, and which makes the medicine go round. Um, is that what's that this phrase? Medicine go down. Well, Hilarious. World go round. Medicine go down. Know. Medicine oh, mate, go down. I, I, I haven't watched the original. I haven't watched the original in so long. I so, know. So long. I think I've only, I think the last time I watched the original I was about eight or nine. But I think I need to go back and rewatch it because this film gave me so much nostalgia for it. Um, um, I, it's, impe- it's impeccably British, like the original. Oh, it's so impeccably um, British. It, it is so bloody British. Even Lin-Manuel Miranda is a, a, a key member of the cast in this film and even he is impeccably British. Yes, exactly. Which is quite an achievement. Yeah, it's amazing. Because um, for someone with such a thick American accent like him, I thought he'd never be able to swallow that down and actually do a British accent but he does it bloody well mm. bloody bloody well bloody well he bloody does well. I, see even I can't do it I just sound like a drunk Michael Caine <laughs> um, um, for me what did you think what did you think of this film oh so there is something to be said for a film that is not as special as the original yeah but, I agree but nevertheless it is just so fun that I couldn't stop smiling I like uh, for me, I it wasn't it wasn't special. The numbers, the musical numbers, whilst they were fun, peppy, like sing not not so much sing along as sort of tap your feet along and have a bit of a boogie in the cinema. Um, but they're not. The, for me, the lyrics of the songs were not the best in the world. But the actual arrangements yeah. were beautiful, and the orchestra was great, and what they did with the scenery was wonderful. Um, for me, I thought it was a film that had a lot of really, really wonderful performances. I think Emily Blunt, Blunt is staggeringly good as Mary Poppins. Yeah, she really um, is. I love Ben Whishaw in it. Um, I, I think I always was going to love Ben Whishaw in this film. Um, I, I kept, I kept sitting there throughout this film thinking. Because like, most of the plot of the film revolves around the fact that the um, Michael and Jane, 
the kids from the original have grown up now and Michael's suffering a bereavement. His wife's just passed away and he's left with the three kids and uh, like unpaid bills. And it's that classic kind of struggling to make ends meet while struggling with grief storyline. Um, and the focus of the film revolves around how Colin Firth's an evil banker who's trying to take their house away. And it does get relatively dark, actually. Like there's a there's a quite an endearing scene where Ben Whishaw's kind of searching through things in the attic, and he sings this song to his late wife, and it's it's very sweet. He's a, he's a lovely he's a brilliant actor, um, and I think I, I was feeling even more sad in the scenes with him because I was I was sitting there and I couldn't shake this feeling in my head that I know is untrue and it's not canon and it's not a part of the story, but I kept thinking, oh fucking hell. Paddington Bear has grown up into a real man now and he's I still know. struggling. I was just I was just thinking, oh Paddington, like you're still having such a hard time of it, mate. I feel for you. <laughs> um No But yeah. he, he is he is he's endearing, he's brilliant. He's also though, he doesn't just play the sad role well, he's also a surprisingly good singer. He's very good in the moments where he's actually quite angry. Um he shows a whole spectrum in this film, which surprised me. I thought it was gonna be quite a straightforward role and it wasn't i love when he goes um, from anger to crying i think yeah. it's, i think it's beautiful like the way he does that and it's it's these short bursts of like of anger just anger to about to sob anger to about to sob anger to about to sob and it's just lovely it's yeah it's just it's just really it's it's heartbreaking but also you you're completely endeared to it by that point um, no, completely. I think also um, Emily Mortimer does a great job as his sister. Yeah, she's great. Uh, grown up. I think uh, Julie Walters, who plays their kind of nanny, like massively over Julie Walters it for me. I actually found her quite abrasive. It really got on my nerves. She was one of the only characters that I, I got frustrated by in the film. She, Probably the only character. Well, Julie Walters is a very fam- has got a very famous um, sort of maid who does that exact same impression. Um, mm. I can't remember the exact thing, but it, it, she, she did a segment on the Graham Norton show where she became that character. And I watched that back and I was like, Julie Walters is just playing that Julie Walters the character that she's again, previously yeah. done. Um, and I, yeah, Julie Walters did feel a bit out of like because it felt like the whole rest of the film sat together. And then I was like, oh, there's Julie Walters doing her Julie thing. Yeah. But I mean, the she was kids fine. were great. The, the kids were great. They were very likeable. Um, if if you could bear their accents towards the end, I was kind of getting like posh British fatigue. It does get a bit exhausting, doesn't it? Well, it's all it's, um, it's, it's that it's that idea of whenever um, it's it's like it's like what in the original it's all in the original it's kind of like what Americans think British people are like, and this mm. one that's cranked up to like times ten, um, even more, yeah, yeah. much much more because they they're, they're the, even the more only British. person. The only person who sounds like he does in real life is Colin Firth. Yes, he does. <laughs> his voice, his voice is just as British as the rest of them, but it doesn't change. Yeah, it is. It is his voice. Um, I do Meryl have some... Streep. Meryl Streep's a great cameo. I she really enjoy plays, Meryl Streep in this. Yeah, she she plays um, Mary Poppins's cousin Topsy. Um, origin unknown, but she's doing this crazy Russian accent, and that's quite a nice, fun musical number. This film is just broken down into musical numbers. Some of them are better than others. Whether they are the kind of numbers, like Will said, that you will end up singing along to one day rather than just tapping your feet to in the cinema is debatable. Yeah, correct. I think one of one of the only songs that might be like kind of 
that might be a legacy for this film is there's a, there's like a lullaby that Mary Poppins sings and then the kids sing to the dad at the end, which is very sweet. And it sounds like I had to look it up to make sure it was an original piece for this film. And it is because it sounded like something that maybe was in the original or was kind of part of Disney already. Um, it's so good. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was it was delightful. It it does like it was a little bit too long for me. I have a couple of issues. I, I may love then, this. Go film. on and talk to me. My first issue is the beginning of the film for me was not impactful enough. I was, yeah, I was agreed. I was bored. In the beginning of the film um, is Lin Manuel Miranda singing throughout London and just going going on this bicycle ride, um, and I'm not not sure about it. Secondly, I have a real problem. Late, not as much later on, but. I have a real problem with the use of CGI to create London. Not the use of CGI, because I think the CGI in this film is fantastic. And the things they do with animation is amazing. Yeah, the animation stuff's brilliant. And it's so cool. And it's so well done. And the, and the musical sequence is great. But what I loved about the original is that you'd have the wonderful bits of animation and then you were back into realistic looking London. For me, this was a fantasy of what London is. And I wanted yeah, to yeah, see yeah. a bit. I didn't want to see like city London, but you can do like um, what's the what's the film with um, the the old the old woman in the van or whatever it's called, the old lady in the van, the one with um, um oh what's her name, <laughs> Maggie Smith. Do you remember the Maggie okay. Smith one? Yeah, 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 yeah. That that film, and then all and then also Paddington. Like these films are. They create London not in a too CGI'd way. They they just use the sort of old Edwardian houses. Um, that 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 populate London in such a lovely way, and for me, like the whole like massive amounts of smog, and um, which just did look very CGI'd, was a bit of a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, those were my two main ones. I think the rest of it is uh, the, my main issue. Probably is that it's not like the most memorable film in the world. Yeah, it, it doesn't it doesn't wow you at any point. Like it's all really lovely and some of it is relatively magical, but it doesn't like I mean it is like am I right in saying it, one of the original songs in the first film is that chim chimney, chim chimney, chim chim chiru. That's from Mary Poppins, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, brilliant. Like I can still remember that from when I was a kid. And my parents can probably remember that from when they were kids. This I won't be like, I actually can't tell you right now. There is there is the alternative version of the chimney sweep song in this film the learys where the Le- the learys they're called or whatever and they do that and manuel miranda obviously like takes center stage again um i do worry that they kind of over manuel miranda in this film he kind of made it a bit too much of his own and it kind of detracted from the point of Mary Poppins for me a little bit yeah it kind of became um, like it for me it was like a duo they were a duo and like, and it, it wasn't the magic of Mary Poppins. It was the magic of Lin Manuel Miranda. Yeah, what yeah, was the character's name? I'm just calling him Lin Manuel Miranda. Jack. 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 Yes. But he, um, yeah, like I, I would agree with you. For example, like my favourite scene in the film is where they go into the ceramic bowl and they go to the Royal Dalton oh, Music amazing. Hall, and it's, it's it's incredible because they're all they're all in these beautiful costumes that are made out of cartoon. And then, like, the little boy, like, takes off his real hat and puts it, like, puts the real hat on a cartoon dog. And then the cartoon dog takes off his cartoon top hat and puts it on the real boy's head. And it's all done seamlessly. It looks incredible. And I know that sounds so boring, but it's just all these little things that they do, these little peculiarities. They're so great. Um, But there's a bit in that where Mary Poppins and Jack 
sing together on stage. And it's it's actually really good. I really, really enjoyed that bit. The cover is not the book song. Um, but there's a bit in it, there's a verse in it, and I fucking knew he'd do it. They had to sneak in. Lin-Manuel Miranda had to sneak in one of his, like, look at me rapping, I do Hamilton. By the way, have you seen Hamilton yet kind of moments? Because he does that, like... You can't keep up with it, and it's all very clever raps that he does. That is what Hamilton is famous for, and I just like for me, it just felt like a fucking sixty minute, ad, sixty second advert for what he does elsewhere. Yeah, and it took, and it wasn't in keeping with the way the film was moving. And anyone who knows who he is and what he represents outside of playing a character in a film knows that they fucking put that bit in because he was determined to get it in. I bet he even. I'm not saying he's a nasty guy, but I I refuse to believe he doesn't have a good business mind, considering how far he's got his plays. I bet he signed on to this film and was like, look, I'll do it, but I want you to be able to let me write a verse and a song to be able to sing myself. And they'd be like, okay, yeah, fine, why not? Mm. Like, How would you not let him do that? But I just, for me, as someone who's quite well educated on who he is, which maybe a lot of people that go and see this won't be, it just felt a bit brazen. Yeah. I, I I get that. Uh, for me, the uh, for me, what happened with Lin-Manuel Miranda was that he was that I have the complete opposite reaction to you. Is that I thought he was throughout the most of the film was doing a sort of average job of playing this character, and then the only bit when the magic came in for me was when he was doing that rap. I loved yeah, the rap. Okay. Because because for me, I was like, well, that's what he that's what he's good at. That's exactly what he's good at. Um, and that's where they use, they're, they're using him correctly. Um, but but, the... but I, I, I think that's where it breaks down for me is that I want to like him, I want to rate him on his ability to embody a character within a film rather than rate him for his ability as an, as an actor. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so like, I, I, want, I want to say that he did a terrific role as Jack, not Lin-Manuel Miranda did that great thing that he always does, but he did it in a... A feature film. Yeah, 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 hundred um, percent. I, I, I just think I just maybe it's just because I'm a I'm a musical theatre nerd. I just love that little bit. Um, well, yeah, yeah, no, I'm not saying it's not fun. It, but it, it, it is very, clever. very. You're right. But it it's is just, very in your it's face. just like look at me. I'm the guy that did Hamilton. <laughs> it, it just just got on my tits. Got on my tits. Anyway, have you got any other points, or should we go on to critic quotes? No, should we go on to critic quotes? I, I, for me, I suppose just my final point is that. I walked out of the cinema and had a spring in my step. With a skip in my step literally, and a pip in my toot. Literally, I felt so great. I felt so I felt like I just I just had a bath run of run run of chocolate and I was just and I was just licking myself and it was great and I was I was a kid again. And that's not creepy if I, if because I'm a child. <laughs> like that was that's the the everything was brilliant. I and I was watching this in Haymarket Odeon and I walked out and just saw Leicester Square with all these lights. I was dazzled by it for the, for the first time in years. And I think that's what the film's done to me, is that even though this is not a perfect film, it was a bloody great cinema-watching experience. Yeah, it is. I, I'm, I, like, again, like with Bird Box, I'm not in a rush to watch it again. No, no. And, and you know what? If I think back to it, I would actually like to see more Mary Poppins in it than there was Mary Poppins. Mm -hmm. Towards the end of the film especially, she kind of gets sidestepped by the overarching plot of the film. And I think in the last, like, 25 minutes, she only really says two or three things. 
And that for me was a shame because I know the idea has always been that Mary Poppins steps in to help people remind themselves of what's important in life and to have fun. Um, and she's supposed to, as she kind of successfully does that, kind of disappear from the limelight a bit. But I just think, considering how bloody incredible Emily Blunt was at playing the character, I wanted to see more of her. Yeah, I agree. And there was also this kind of like, they did it a few times, especially towards the end of the film, this kind of like, she sort of looked at herself or looked at a moment kind of like slightly sad or melancholy. Um, and I, I don't know if I'm missing a point in the film, but I, I couldn't grasp why she was feeling sad in any way. I thought that she was kind of just this omnipresent being that is quite giving and doesn't really think about herself or her own emotions and just is there to help people, kind of like Nanny McPhee. Um Am I am I wrong there? Is there no, is, there, is, is I, there some narrative of her not having a true family to call her own and spend her time with, or something that would make her sad? I don't think there is narrative of that, but what I think creates that, because I do agree with you, is that throughout the film, Emily Blunt, rather than getting a lot of dialogue, sometimes just gets reaction shots. Throughout yeah. the whole film, she's just getting constant, constant, constant reaction shots. And because Emily Blunt is a good actress, but you can only get so many, given so many reaction shots before it becomes a bit ridiculous, it does mean that in some in some things she's getting the same reaction shot, but it's having to do different emotions. And I think she's doing that classic actor thing of like happy, sad, a bit confused. Like like they're just yeah. they're, it's just very sparse, very dotted around. Um, like like the director who di directed this is a guy called Robert Marshall, who directed Chicago, Into the Woods. And then this film, and then, he, um, but he also directed Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's also he's also due to do the Little Mermaid. Remake. He is due to do the Little Mermaid, where um, which will probably be written by Lin Manuel Miranda. Um, but yes, I I think he's a very good choreographer. But sometimes, and he's and this film was so sweet, and I, and so was Into the Woods. I thought Into the Woods was sweet, but he does have this ability for creating musicals that never really have. And have a, a a proper emotional standpoint. So for this film, I felt wowed and and smiled by, but I wasn't I wasn't completely moved. And I always I I think that's maybe what the problem with is is with Emily Blunt's acting is that he's she he's getting the direction a bit wrong. Mm. Mm. But anyway, that's I, I so, love it. So I I'm not going so, piss, to piss off Robert Marshall anymore. Please hire so me. What, <laughs> Will desperately needs a job. Yep. Um, I've got a job. You, just not a musical theatre. <laughs> just just one that I want. Um, what would you say is your best description? Uh, my best description is from Alexandra McCarran from Women's Voices for Change. No, Women's Voices for Changes. Um, I don't know why there's I don't know why there's a plural there, but there is a plural. Um, the long-anticipated Mary Poppins Returns may not quite live up to the Disney's 1964 classic, but if you're looking for a reason to smile for two hours and ten minutes, which do fly by, you can't do much better. I agree. I actually do think that the timings of this film, I wasn't actually that... It's a long film, but I didn't feel it was that long. Uh, I'm going to put my hands up and say I disagree. I think it was, I think it was overly long. Um, I think it was bloated down by quite a generic central storyline. Um, yeah, I wanted more moments. Uh, yeah, yeah, same. I was just like in the scenes in between, except for the ones that are really well acted. I was kind of thinking there are so many scenes in this film that are just exposition and just serve a purpose of driving the story towards a conclusion. And I was just wait. I was kind of like, uh, truth be told, I was being naughty. Well, I was in the cinema. I was looking at my phone, um, and I was sort of thinking like, you know, 
give me a shout when the next song starts kind of thing. Mm. Um, my best description is from Peter Rayner of Christian Science Monitor. Ooh. I have no idea what that is. Um, he said it's well crafted, well acted, and features some terrific live action slash animation combos, but it never quite achieves liftoff, which is a big problem for a musical, especially this musical. Still, I suppose momentary joy is better than no joy at all. Correct. <laughs> all about that momentary joy. <laughs> Walking down Leicester Square singing. I was singing. <laughs> With a pip in my step. Yes. Um, most savage quote, mate. Uh, this is from Louise Moore from Screen Zealots. Um, she says... Screen Zealots? Yeah, I know. It is a bit extreme calling it Screen Zealots. I don't know. Well, she's she she does have quite strong opinions um, by, the, by the look of this review, which is a joyless test of endurance where you will absolutely feel every single second that ticks away in the theatre. So mm. it's just it's just the opposite of what you said. It's, it's the opposite of what I said previously and what you said. So... I'm starting off the year with a savage quote that might, by the end of 2019, still be the most cynical thing we've read out on this podcast. Oh, I love a good bit of cynicalness. Um, so this is Charles Bromesco from the AV Club. Love the AV and Club. He, and he slurs, he, he, he spouts from his uh, horrible orifices. Is it pure he venom says, fury? It is pure venom, mate. Pure rage. It's the poppins we know and love. Back to restore our dimming sense of childlike amazement on behalf of a gargantuan, sinister corporation currently waging a campaign to mechanically extract every available dollar from our earliest memories. Oh, dear. Jesus Christ. Charlie. Charlie boy. Uh, that's, that's actually a good, uh, interesting point to pick up from. I don't really want to compare it too much to the original. Like, because even though it's got similar sort of storyline to it, it's a very different beast. And I'm happy, to, like, I'm happy that it was dif different in enough ways that it made it its own. But also, I, I'm, I'm not on, under the whole thing of, like, Disney is just making all these films so that more children can pay into their pockets. Like, yeah. like I, I get that. <laughs> Grow up. Yeah, yeah, I get that. I get that. But, like, and... There's been a lot of critics of this film talking about like the, the dime thing about like Disney's like Disney's going back to cap capitalism at the end of the end of the film. I just think that's a really positive life message at the end, it's like the saving of the, this beautiful saving of the dime that's made that's made the kids the fortune. I just think that's lovely. It doesn't you don't need to create Disney as an enemy, especially when they're actually doing a fantastic job mostly. Yeah, it is quite funny though because the films. overarching the overarching plot point of this film is. Yeah, you can realise that all you need is your family, but unless Dick Van Dyke has successfully saved your shares, you don't have shit and your family's going to be out on the street and you're not going to be able to enjoy yourself with any happy musical numbers. It, it, it's got a strange overarching theme of money kind of does fundamentally buy happiness. Yeah. Well, it's this, it's this whole thing of... I mean, the first Mary Poppins film was constantly focused at the bank, the bank, the bank, and more bank. Yeah, and, um, yeah. And so it is It is a film about money in a weird way. Um, what would you give it out of 10? I am giving it a well-deserved, but not completely completely po positive, 7. Yeah, same. I think it, um, it, it was wonderful in so many ways and it was fleshed out by a cast that all know what they're doing and they're doing a really good job with it it just didn't have that spark for me i think it could have been even more creative and could have spent more time being creative 
on its overarching storyline as well as the musical numbers. Because I think what it lacked was an element of joy and entertainment in a, like a large amount of these scenes that didn't revolve around the children and gallivanting off on some funny adventure. Mm. And I think even the simplest way of doing it would have been kind of like, you know, the way the um, series of unfortunate events TV show has quite an austere, dark sense of humor, but it's quite slapstick and comical. Yes. Um, they, I feel like they should have made the in-between scenes with kind of like the stress of trying to save the house. They could have made them more entertaining by injecting a bit more black humour or a bit more just kind of slapstickness. Yeah, I agree. Um, and it, they just ended up being a bit of a slog because they were trying to drive home a serious point but kind of lost sight of the fact that you could do that while also maintaining the fact that it's a film about fun and adventure. Mm. The most difficult scenes to watch in this are the walks that Mary Poppins and the children and Jack go on to get to Topsy's house and to get back from Topsy's house. Yeah, it just takes, very true. It, it, it takes so long and there's no need for that scene to be there. And then the whole Jack and... Um, uh, was Jack and um, I was about to say Jack and Jill run up Jane. the hill. Jack and Jane's relationship didn't really go anywhere either, which was a shame because that's a that's a nice storyline. I think I think they just they just they could have they just needed to cut that out if, for me. They they are, they either add thirty extra minutes, which this film doesn't need, or yeah. they cut it out. It didn't need it. Right. Anyway, I think that is this. That is us done. First episode of 2019, mate. I've loved every second of it. I'm very excited about being 2019. I'm very excited to be continuing this podcast with you, mate. Very, mate, all very good. And we've come in at a running time that is less than both Bird Box and Mary Poppins. <laughs> exactly. I think the day we do a podcast that is longer than one of the films we're reviewing, we've missed. We've we, we've we've gone way over the mark we've misjudged our audience i think yeah <laughs> um so next week we are back in the pod yeah I'm we are oh. back in the pod in white city place next weekend we're very fucking excited about it we, were, we first did the pod what in october yeah it, was, it feels um, like a while ago now yeah we had a wicked time me will and a random dude sat in there talking he about was films. lovely what was his name um, i want to know him he seems great can't remember his name, but he was the sound engineer for Context, and we hope we had the same one again. He was a lovely bloke. He laughed um, at our jokes. That's 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 more than he did. <laughs> he did, and that was that was very important for us when <laughs> really it was early days of the podcast to realise that we might actually be funny to other people, exactly. and not just ourselves. Exactly. Um, but we are going to be reviewing two films in the pod. We are going to be reviewing the favourite. The Yorgos Lanthimos film that me and Will have been waiting for for months on end. It's now finally here. It came out on January 1st and we are going to see it at some point in the next few days. And we are also going to review the surprise release of Black Mirror Bandersnatch, which is the new interactive movie from Black Mirror from Charlie Brooker that is on Netflix that people are still struggling to understand. I'm still struggling to understand it. We were going to review it this week. But I think me and you both need to go back and play through it again and truly try and grasp what the hell is going on there because it is a real mindfuck. Yeah, I I tried to analyse it on a coach and ended up getting really sad. And I've got I've got a I I wrote down exactly what my thoughts are on the film. I'm gonna have to revisit it because I looked back at them today and I was like, oh my gosh. I am the most depressing man in the world. <laughs> um, and also a fun fun little uh, fact about the favourite. Um, um, my friend, my one of my friends has previously seen it and he said, um, uh, I've seen The Favourite. I was like, oh, what was it like? And he said, it will make you reminisce about your wonderful time in musical theatre. 
um, which I which I I'm interested to see what that means. So I'm going to interpret that next week in the podcast. Fantastic. Um, and with that, we are done. Thank you very much to all of you for listening. Um, join us next week for that. We'll be in the pod. Uh, keep in touch with us on Instagram, Facebook. Twitter. Jake is dabbing as you're saying this. I'm, I'm ducking and weaving. I'm, I'm <laughs> shouting out and I'm reaching on to invisible things that aren't there. And we will see you all next week. Bye.